Hi, I'm Tyler Sultze, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the Scripture this morning and open to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. In a moment, we will be reading verses 15 and 16. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you this morning, page 973. I encourage everyone to have God's Word in front of them somehow this morning, to be looking at these words, hearing these words, letting these words penetrate into their hearts and their minds. And as we begin to have this thought, there will be a day when I and all those who are Christians will see Jesus Christ. That's a day I long for. When I see my Savior face to face, when I am made like him as he is because I see him. Is that your desire? Is that your longing? Did you, did you think about that this week? That there will come a day when my faith will be turned to sight. And when everything that I long to see, I will see when I see Jesus. I hope you long to see Jesus. I hope you have that desire. And that, that desire infects everything that you do, everything that you are, and it's all taken into account as you live your life for him. So would you stand with me as we read God's word out of respect, reverence for God's word, Reading Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. And that, when I finish verse 16, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are thankful for his precious word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, 
Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We receive your word, O God. We treasure up your commandments. Make our ears attentive to your wisdom. Incline our hearts to understanding. As we call out for insight, as we raise our voice for understanding, as we seek for it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, may you grant to us to understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We have arrived in the book of Galatians at a dangerous and terrifying point. A point that is quite unsafe but quite necessary for everyone to come to. Wherever you are today in life, whatever is going on in your life, wherever you are, whoever you are, these verses stop every person dead in their tracks. And when we want to get to the main point of something, when we want to get to the core of something, we say we need to get to the heart of it. That organ that is so vital, which keeps us alive, So we come here today to the very heart, the very center, the very core of the gospel. It is this teaching that pumps the lifeblood to the rest of the gospel. It is crucial teaching, a doctrine of the utmost importance. What we as Christians base our salvation upon. And it is the heart of the gospel that is so dangerous because it is the heart of the gospel that attacks the heart of man. It is the core, the heart of the gospel that confronts the core, the heart of who you are as a person. It is the heart of the gospel that must penetrate into your heart, but that is not easy. That does not come naturally. That is not something that can be forced or coerced. It's not something that I can cause to happen in you. It's not even something that you can cause to happen in yourself. Rather, it happens by the supernatural working of God, where he so applies the heart of his gospel to your heart. And on the face of it, it's dangerous because mankind, in our sinful condition, our sinful nature, hates these ideas, hates this doctrine. We hate this teaching, and we, if left to ourselves, would fight this teaching tooth and nail. It does not merely rub us the wrong way. It agitates us. It aggravates us. Down to the very depths of our soul. And it goes against everything that the world says. 
It goes against everything that our sinful flesh says. It attacks who we are as people. It attacks what we are able to do or accomplish as people. It attacks our pride. It attacks what we hold dear to ourselves. It attacks the things that we think we can't live without. It attacks the things that we are holding on to for comfort and assurance. It attacks those things in our lives that we would point to and we would say, look, I am okay. But all of those self-exalting security blankets that we cling to in our life can never rid us of the lingering doubt that whispering in our souls that we hear, you're not okay. You're a mess. You have nothing, at least nothing that is certain enough, nothing at least that removes all of the uncertainty that you have to tell yourself that you have it all together. We, because of our sinful nature, are self-justifying people, aren't we? You spend your life trying to justify yourself in the eyes of man. You think you can do the same then before God. If I just do enough before man, if I just make them think well of me, then they'll like me. Then I I will have vindicated myself, proven myself good, acceptable in their eyes, and we think that we can do the same to God. The problem is God isn't impressed by you. And you can't deceive him. The heart of the gospel is set to level, to raise, to ruin, and tear down our sinful hearts. The heart of the gospel and the heart of man must meet, must be joined together, and it's crucial for the fight of the gospel. It must be joined to those who do not believe. So if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you desperately need to hear the heart of the gospel applied to your heart because it's the only way that you will be saved. But if you are a Christian, you also need to hear the heart of the gospel. Because you need the heart of the gospel applied to your heart every single day. Martin Luther said that this truth that we will talk about this morning is the truth that needs to be beat into our heads over and over and over again. We need it because this is the doctrine upon which our lives as Christians stand. If this truth is removed, we, like everyone else in the world and like every other religion in the world, will be in vain. It's the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's absolutely central to who we are, to how we live, to the gospel we proclaim, to the body of Christ that we are to be in this world, which shines forth as a light for everyone to see. If the heart of the gospel is lost in us, I dare say that the light has gone out. But if the heart of the gospel has pierced into our hearts, it has gripped us and continues to grip us, our light as Christ's church, our desire to see the glory of Christ spread to every nook and cranny of the globe and into every nook and cranny of every human heart will dominate our lives. I haven't even told you what the doctrine is yet, have I? Maybe before I just come out and tell you what it is, it might be good to start with a question. How is anyone ever 
found acceptable in God's eyes. How can anyone ever be right before God? That presupposes a problem, doesn't it? The problem is that God is infinitely holy, righteous, perfect, and good, and we are not. That we are sinners and that we have missed the mark, we have disobeyed God, we have gone against Him and His ways. And while we might try to ignore this or minimize it in our lives, we know it to be true. Our sin separates us from God. And this is pictured perhaps nowhere clearer than in the very beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve sin against God in the Garden of Eden. They think they know better than God. They think they can care for themselves. They think that they they can actually be God themselves. They disobey by eating the forbidden fruit that God had commanded them not to eat. And so because of their sin, they're cursed by God. And then you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, and it says this. God, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. How is it that man is going to get back to God? How is man going to have fellowship with God again? How is man going to be able to enter into the very presence of God again and so dwell with God in perfect peace and harmony? How is it that man is going to be right before God, seen as righteous before God? This is where the heart of the gospel comes in because it speaks a word which our sinful hearts hate to hear. It says this, you can't do it. You can't make yourself right before God. You can't get back to God by your own effort, by your own work, by all that you try to do. You cannot work your way into his favor, into his acceptance. And that's different than how we judge so many of our relationships within this world. What might we say to those people around us? Look at all that I've done for you. Look at how much I've sacrificed for you. Look at how much work and effort I've put in. There's no reason for you not to accept me. And so we think of that in the terms of God. That I can work my way into being right before him. It's like an epic drama. If you've read those kind of books or seen those kind of movies where this great, strong, mighty hero traverses this great course, climbing mountaintops, wading through the deepest valleys, defeating the most terrible creatures. He's gone through this great battle to get to the very end, and he's almost there, and you see the battle scars that are upon him. You've seen everything that he's gone through. The stride, the walk that was once strong and proud has now become a crawl. He's dirtied. He's desperate. And you're there and you're waiting for that final moment of victory. And it's as if he reaches out for that final moment of victory, that final moment of triumph. What you've been waiting for, the resolution where everything is made right again. And what happens? The flaming sword falls on him and kills him. That is Tragedy. But how often is that how we think about our lives? I will be the hero. You make it all of the way through this life only to have God's flaming sword fall upon you. 
There's no way back into the garden on your own, by yourself, by what you do. That is a horrific tragedy. All because, man, we think that we can work our way to be acceptable in God's eyes. All because we think we can do enough, obey enough, clean ourselves up enough by what we do so that we're able to stand right in God's eyes. But that is not the gospel. That is not what it means to be a Christian. The heart of the gospel is that one is justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that's a big word. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous before God and by God. Justification, to be justified, means to be declared righteous So it's a declaration that God is making, a pronouncement that God is making over people saying, you are righteous, you are right. And it's not only a pronouncement made before God, as God is the ultimate judge, but it's a pronouncement made by God himself. It means, if you are justified... You are no longer one who stands guilty and condemned, but now you are declared by the judge to be not guilty, innocent, and righteous. Justification is God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts the sinner right with himself, not only by pardoning and acquitting him, but by accepting him and treating him as righteous. It's as if, not only does the judge say, you are innocent, You are found not guilty, but it's as if the judge welcomes you with open arms and embraces you and accepts you and loves you. We must know this definition because Paul is going to use the term justified three times in these two verses. All of this to attack our sinful hearts. All to attack this idea that It's all about our works, our works even according to the law of God, as he says here, or our obedience of the law. These are verses that the sinful human heart hates because it says to you, you can do nothing to work to save yourself. And it's the heart of the gospel that's also the heart of the book of Galatians. It's this doctrine that Paul will continue to expound upon and develop It's his central thesis, if you will, where all of his other points will flow out of this one main point. And this is the main point he is making here as he recounts what Peter has done, how Peter had acted hypocritically. Peter, remember, had come to the church at Antioch. He came and he was eating with the Gentiles. He was having fellowship with them, but then he drew back from them. He separated himself when the men from James came. And it says that he did that because he feared the party of the circumcision. He was afraid of persecution that might come upon him or that might come upon other Jews, other Jewish Christians, because of his eating with the Gentiles. And that eating, remember, was something that was good for Peter to do. Jesus Christ had told Peter to do that in that vision where that sheet had descended from heaven in Acts 10, 
When Jesus said to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and Peter said, no, 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 I'm the good Jew, but Jesus says, no, what, what I have made, what I have given to you, do not call uncommon or unclean. Rise and kill and eat. And so Paul has been confronting Peter on his hypocrisy. And he ended in verse 14 here of chapter 2 by a question. He says this to Peter or Cephas. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter had come. He'd been living like a Gentile. He'd been eating with the Gentiles. He'd been associating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And then he had pulled back. And Paul says, Peter, how can, how can you live like a Gentile? How can you have thrown off the Old Testament law to live like a Gentile, only to go back to your own ways, and then you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's the answer that's implied to this question? How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You can't. You can't force them to do this. And now he tells us the reason why you can't. With two appeals that are meant for Peter, but two appeals that are also meant for us here this morning. Appeals that we must listen to and consider for our own lives. So what is it that Paul appeals to? This is very simple. My points this morning, very simple. You can find them in your outline. But Look, anybody could find these just by reading the text. So what I hope I'm doing is also helping us when we read texts. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we read these texts? So number one, we must know people are only justified by faith and not by works. So that first word, we must know. You see that there at the beginning of verse 16, yet we know. The first appeal is to knowledge, what Peter knew, what Paul knew, what we know, or what we are supposed to know. There was a time when I was fascinated with watching pro-bass fishing on television. Ever watched pro-bass fishing on television? Some people might think it's boring, but I found it fascinating. Here you had these fishermen in their boats by the shore, casting out their lures by the shore. And they would do it so effortlessly, so easily, they'd cast it out there and they'd be reeling in. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how they did this, I don't know how they do it. It didn't look like anything was happening, but they must have felt that nibble, that slight tug on their rod. And all of a sudden, they just jerk it back real fast. This is what Paul is doing here in our text. He's putting the lure out. He's setting the bait to begin with, if you will, before he hooks Peter. And he does that in verse 15. Do you see that? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul starts by making a distinction. He speaks of this shared and common ethnicity that they have. They are Jews by birth. They were born into that nation. They had been elected by God as those Jews. They were not proselytes to Judaism. They were not second-class Jews. They were Jews of status, Jews of privilege. They weren't like the Gentile sinners. You can almost hear, can't you, the disdain 
in his mouth when he says that, as he sets the bait. We're Jews by birth, not like those Gentile sinners. There are other places that we could go to in the Bible where Paul does not deny that there is an advantage given to Jews. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In Romans 9, Paul speaks of his sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his fellow Jews who did not believe, but he lists the advantage that they have when he says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to, let, to, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. How human is it for us to focus on all of the advantages that are afforded to us? Or the reasons why we should be able to think of ourselves more highly than other people. Surely, Jews by birth are better, are superior, not like the Gentile sinners. The Jews had the Old Testament law from God himself to follow. The Gentiles didn't have that. And they didn't even try to follow it. Maybe it was the Jewish law keeping that made it possible for them to be accepted by God. Maybe it was their Jewish law-keeping that made it so they were right before God. Maybe their Jewishness made it possible for them to be saved by God. Maybe it added something special to them so that God would clear them from their guilt. And Paul has set the bait, and with one swift move, the trap is sprung and the hook is set. Because Paul comes in and says, yet we know. We have a particular knowledge, Peter, you and I. We know something, and we know better than not to fall for that trap. We know that a person, any person, the idea here is mankind, mankind, everybody, any person, there is only one condition. And man's condition is not based upon his ethnicity. Man's condition is based upon his heart. And man's heart is sinful. It's why Paul says back in Romans 3, 9, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then he says in verse 20 of Romans 3, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the problem. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And I believe here that Paul is referencing the entirety of the law in the Old Testament. You can try to keep all the laws of the Old Testament. You can try to be obedient to the works of the law, but that will never make you right before God. The Old Testament law could never do what you needed to do in your life. It could never change you. It was supposed to give you a knowledge of your sin. It was supposed to confront you with the fact that you are a sinner. That in fact, no matter how hard you tried, you can never keep the whole law. That in the letter of the law or in the spirit of the law, you have broken all of God's commandments. 
because it's not only in the letter of the law, do not commit adultery, do not murder, but it's also in the heart or in the spirit of the law. Whoever looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Whoever is angry with his brother is a murderer in his heart. Look at the Jews by birth. You think that you are special? You think that you are different? You think that you are set apart? You are just like the rest of ordinary humanity. That is where you are to be included with the sinners. And you can't be justified by God by keeping the works of the law. By keeping the Old Testament, by keeping those laws, it won't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because God doesn't justify people who are righteous. God justifies people who are sinners. God doesn't justify people who are righteous. God justifies people who are sinners. It's God who justifies the ungodly. You want to claim your own righteousness that you, pres- that you possessed through all of your good works, through all of your obedience, through all of your law-keeping? Go ahead, but know this. You will not be justified by God. You will rather be condemned by God. Who does God justify? God justifies the one who beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mankind gets us so easily turned around to think that we become acceptable to God because we are actually righteous. I mean, that's our problem. That's how we think. That I will become acceptable to God because I am actually righteous. But that is not the heart of the gospel. Rather, it is that we are actually righteous because we are accepted by God. How does that happen? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not merely faith. How many in our world might talk about faith, that it is good to have faith, that you need to have faith in your life. But our salvation in our lives does not depend merely on having faith. It depends upon the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And he is the worthy object of our faith because he has perfectly kept the law of God. He obeyed where Adam failed. He obeyed where Israel failed. He obeyed where all mankind has failed. And it is because of this that we are saved. And it's because of this that we must look outside of ourselves. It's not a call for us to search inside our hearts and find some righteousness or some goodness there. That is a vain work because you won't find any. But when we look outside of ourselves, when we look to Jesus, when we cease from our striving to make our own way to God and make ourselves acceptable in his sight and look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy went before him to the cross and endured the shame who is now seated at the right hand of God, then God justifies. Do you know this way of salvation? Have you heard 
that the only way to be accepted by God, the only way to be declared righteous before God is simply through faith in Christ and in Christ alone, not through works, not even through your own obedience, that you are not saved in any way if you try to clean up yourself, that you are not saved by your own striving to reach up to God, that you are not saved by all of your efforts, all of your goodness, whatever you think you have, but this idea is dangerously prevalent. It was dangerously prevalent in the time of Paul. It has been dangerously prevalent down throughout the ages and nothing has changed today. How do you know that you are a Christian? How do you know that God has accepted you? How do you know that God will accept you? That God has declared a verdict of not guilty upon you? Because I am a good person. Because all of my good works outweigh my bad works. Because I haven't gotten into too much trouble. Because I try to do what is right. Because I have obeyed him. Because of all of the service I have given to him. No way. Only through faith in Christ. No one comes to the Father but through him. And it is a dangerous place if you are sitting there this morning thinking, this is so easy. This is so basic. I've heard this all before. It doesn't really apply to me. If you don't have to wrestle with this knowledge in your life, beware. If you think you've got this mastered, be on guard. You don't know what you think you know. You don't know the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. Particularly, when you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by the grace of God without our own works and then pretend that this is a snap for him, well, then have no doubt that he has no idea of what he is talking about and probably never will. For this is not an art that can be completely learned or of which anyone could boast that he is a master. It is an art that will always have us as pupils while it remains the master. And all those who do understand and practice it do not boast that they can do everything. Where are you this morning? Pretending that this is a snap for you? Or have you come again as a pupil to learn from this truth? Desiring for this truth to take deep root in your heart and to convince you again that you have no righteousness in you whatsoever. We must know that people are saved only by being justified through faith and not by works. But now number two, we must believe We must believe we are only justified by faith and not by works. I told you this was unimpressive. (laughs) I mean, two words, know and believe this morning. But I'm not trying to make this fancy. I'm trying to get you to understand it and know it, right? So that you could read the Bible and say, yeah, I see that. It's as plain as day. There it is. We know and now we believe. It wasn't just enough for Peter and Paul to know about how people are justified. 
Paul goes further. He applied the knowledge of justification by faith in Christ alone by saying it is applied through believing in Jesus Christ. This is a huge difference. It is the difference between saying, I know how someone is saved, and saying, I've been saved. Those are two different statements, and the outcome of each is completely different as well. It's the difference between saying, I know how to get in, and saying, I'm in. And on the last day, when Christ returns... There may be many who know how to get in. There might be many who know how to be saved. Many who know the doctrine, maybe can even quote Bible verses about the doctrine. People who could quote these verses frontwards and backwards and upside down. But they will not enter the kingdom of God, but who will be cast into the lake of fire. Why? Because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul does here in this confrontation with Peter. He's using these inclusive pronouns. We know, we believe. Paul appeals to what Peter knows, his knowledge, and the application of that knowledge which has led to belief. Look at how Paul is not questioning Peter's belief. He is not questioning Peter's salvation. Peter, I know you know this truth, and I know you have believed this truth, but you are struggling to live out this truth. You are struggling to demonstrate what you believe. And so Paul is reminding Peter that his actions are inconsistent with what he believes. And that is dangerous for Peter. And it's a danger for all Christians. We believe but we are not living that belief out. We are struggling. We slip back into this works-based salvation. We can slip back into thinking that somehow we need to help ourselves toward salvation. Is Christ really able to save? And is that enough? It doesn't seem like enough. And oh, that we would cry out to our Savior, I believe, help my unbelief. And Paul brings us to the application of the knowledge You know that anyone is only justified by God by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. Good, but that is not enough. You must believe Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ is not intellectual conviction only. It is personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Don't miss this. Faith in Jesus Christ is not intellectual conviction. So, You got it in your mind, that's great. But that is not enough. That's not where it stops. It's personal commitment to Jesus Christ. I not only know about him, I not only know what he's done, but I actually believe it in my heart that he has done it for me. And so Paul and Peter and all those who are truly Christians have believed in Jesus Christ for this purpose, to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. The purpose of justification flows out of the action of belief. It is saying this, I have believed for the purpose of being justified by God. I have believed in God because I know that I am a sinner, because I know that there is nothing good in me. There's no righteousness in me. I have nothing in me that can save me, that I cannot even so much move a finger toward God for salvation. 
that without Christ I am a dead man, but being called by God, I have believed in Jesus Christ for my salvation, for everything, and so then I have been declared righteous by God because of Christ's merit and not my own. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. You hear that? For with the heart, inner man who I am inside, one believes and so what? Is justified, is declared righteous by God, is accepted by God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Is that a struggle for you, dear brother or sister? Do you believe those words? Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Is that ever a fear for us, Christians? That in the world, declaring, standing up, saying, we believe in Jesus Christ would bring shame upon us, but what does God's word say? You will not be put to shame. It does not say you will not be put to shame by the world. The world might try to shame you, but what? You will not be put to shame before God, will you? He will accept you. He will bring you in. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we know, and we believe, We are justified, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. But is that faith, is that faith a work? Is that something that we must do? There's a certain amount of human responsibility in, in that, isn't there? You must have faith How do I get that? What does the Bible say? Faith is a gift from God, isn't it? He gives that to you as a gift. Maybe it could be expressed with this illustration. This illustration is not my own, but I think it's helpful. Picture yourself as a murderer, condemned to death and awaiting execution. You are guilty and everyone knows it. You deserve to die, and then you get a letter from the President of the United States, which says that he has, by his sovereign power, decided to remit your sentence and let you go free. The reason that he gives for this decision is not that any new evidence has turned up, but rather, he simply wants to demonstrate to everyone his power in his declaration of mercy and to transform your disregard for his laws into humble adoration for his merciful sovereignty. He calls your attention to his seal on the letter and instructs you to simply show it to the warden who will then let you go free. No questions asked. So you call the guard, show him the letter, and get a hearing with the warden. And as you enter the warden's office, you smell the fresh air of life and liberty blowing in his window. You see the tops of trees and a kite flying beyond the wall. 
You hand him the letter, and he reads it. Without query, he orders the guard to get your things. And you leave the gates. And as you turn back to look at the massive prison and the rows of windows where you had been just an hour before, you start running, jumping, shouting, and laughing, and telling everyone, the president let me out. The president let me out. Faith is the one human act which calls attention alone to God's merit, honor, and glory and his unswerving commitment to maintain his glory. It's nothing that we do. It's only by his Sovereign mercy. Do you worship God because of his sovereign mercy in your life? Do you live your life for him because of that? Before we get away from these two simple, maybe even repetitive verses, Paul gives us the ground or the reason why we must believe in Christ Jesus. The very end, because. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Literally, this is no flesh will be justified. Paul calls upon the Old Testament here to help ground why we must believe in Jesus Christ. This is Psalm 143, verse 2. It says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So here, Paul highlights the weakness, the frailty, the utter inability of all mankind, of all human flesh, and look at how inclusive, look at how inclusive the gospel is. Isn't that the charge of many Christians today? That, that we are exclusive? That we exclude people? No way. We believe that no one will be justified by their works and that everyone has the same problem, but the way to salvation is the same for all people. You can't work your way to salvation. You can't work your way to God. You can't accomplish anything or add anything to your salvation because you are completely unable to do so. And with this final phrase, Paul slams the door in the face of human achievement and human ability and human performance and human works to make themselves righteous in the eyes of God. The gospel shocks us because it undermines and undercuts and demolishes human pride. That is why the sinful heart hates the heart of the gospel because it strips us of any and of all of our pride. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. The fact that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ strips us of all of our boasting, of everything that we have done. Nothing but sin and rebellion against God is all that we've done. But what has he done? What has God done? He has done everything in sending his son to live the perfect life, to die the death in the place of sinners, to rise again victorious from the grave, to save us all from our sin. Nothing in my hands do I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And that is the heart of the gospel today. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I call you today. Put your faith in him. He alone will save you. 
He alone will draw you out of that darkness. He will alone draw you out of your sin. Open your eyes to the fact that you are a sinner, that your sin separates you from God, and the only way back, the only way past that flaming sword is Jesus Christ. Because that flaming sword, instead of falling upon you, has fallen upon him. He died for our sin. He took our place. He died so we might live and be forgiven. It's not just enough for us to know that. We must believe it. Let us then fall before the majesty of God, recognizing our desire to save ourselves by what we do and repent of our pride Come humbly before God the Father, who accepts us on no merit of our own, but only on the merit of his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, search our hearts this morning, I pray. Reveal to us the ways we've tried to make ourselves look good before you. Reveal to us the ways that we've tried to clean ourselves up. The ways that we've made our salvation about us and not about Jesus Christ. Let us go back again to this truth that the only way that we are accepted in your eyes, the only way that we are declared righteous before you is through faith in Jesus Christ. We were the sinners bound in the dungeon of our sin and our own spiritual death. until Christ called us out. Because Christ forgave us and set us free. And so now Christ would be our all in all. Father, I pray if there's someone here today who does not know you, that they would call out to you today in repentance, turning from their sin, and in faith in you. Save them. Rescue them. Give them new life. All for your glory and your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.